0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When is a werewolf actually a vampire? What's so magical about cabbages? And what monsters might be lurking in your bathroom? Well, for today's episode, Kev Lochan spoke to author Noah Charney and historian and anthropologist Svetlana Slapsak about their book, The Slavic Myths, which explores some of the most compelling and creepy stories in Slavic mythology.
3: Noah and Svetlana, thank you so much for joining me today. We're talking about your book, The Slavic Myths, so perhaps the best place to start is with who exactly are the Slavs when we're talking about in this way?
4: Well, linguistically, it's the largest language group in Europe, which also goes to Asia and so on. It's not recognized as such, (laughs) and Slavic languages and Slavic peoples have been underestimated, I would say, which also reflects itself in very strong Slavic and fragmented Slavic nationalism, which grew so big in the 19th century. (laughs) So Slavs are extremely important they are still regarded as something exotic in the heart of Europe, although they take a bigger part of that body. (laughs) So, it's interesting to watch how this self-perception and reception of the Slavic mass (laughs) is going on in Europe during the, let's say, during the modern times, since, let's say, the ninth century, which is the time when approximately they appeared on the vision of the Western Europe.
3: So what we're saying is that the Slavs are actually quite a diverse group of peoples. And, you know, we're talking about Slavic myths. How then is that diversity represented in the mythology? Is it one set of myths that spans a lot of peoples? Or do we get a sense of variation by geography?
4: Well, these myths are represented in quite a number of weird ways. (laughs) In fact, the links and connotations are often lost and not in translation, but in the insisting nationalism which emerged among Slavic peoples, especially in the 19th century. And most of these myths are, if you want, twisted around (laughs) by the academics and by the people that were gathering the myths. So you have so many interventions that, in fact, you cannot speak about the original myth, because of course we don't have text to prove it.
3: We're going to talk about nationhood a bit more in a little bit, but I guess... I'd like to dive into the myths themselves a little bit. And I know next to nothing about the Slav pantheon of gods. And I, well, maybe I know something. I don't know that I know it if I do. I suspect that might be true for much of our relationship. So I wonder if you could very briefly just take us through who the main gods and goddesses are In this pamphlet?
4: Well, here we meet the first uh, serious problem, and that is that Slavic myths have been formed, structured, and classified according to previous models. First of all, the classic myths, the ancient myths, Greek myths, basically. The other problem is, of course, that the huge cultural waves that were forming Slavic myths, like Indo European intrusion and then uh, Christianity and so on, have been at the same time preserved, some myths, and on the other hand, they were changing myths. So, yes, basically, we have a number of gods, candidates for the supreme god, like Perun, like Ilias, and also some others. We also have several candidates for the underworld gods, like Veles, and we have a mysterious grandmother of everything and everybody, which is Mokosh, the female goddess, which controls almost everything, from everyday life and work and chores of women to, let's say, the destiny of gods by making love to the wrong god at the wrong time, being seen by her husband, and so on and so on. And then there are minor gods which control sunlight, which control travel, which control fertility, fertility of plants and fertility of animals and people. And also, there's a huge, but a huge number of creatures that were defined as semi-gods in classical mythology. So, there is this really stunning difference of myths which were traveling, which are obviously transferred from one place and one people to another people, and then were serving other ideas and other possible narrative lines. So, when you think about Slavic mythology, me, myself, I first think of creatures, creatures that inhabit swamps, woods, plains, mountains, up, down to our bathrooms. There's a special creature living in the steam room in Russian tradition or the creatures that live in in corners, so you have to be very well organized about cleaning the corners. if you don't want some creature to become really mad <laughs> with you. And also the, the entrance to the houses and then the roof, which is extremely important because through the roof, through the flameways, creatures travel to the underworld or in the other direction. And you also have to think under which tree you will sit or sleep because you might wake up totally crazy. Or you have to take care about passing beside a cemetery at certain hour. You have to be careful when you eat a certain fruit and when, (laughs) when you don't. You have to be careful about mixing water with wine or when do you drink beer and from which side, left or right, and so on and so on. So, there are hundreds and millions of rules which, in fact, make the Slavic life, if you want, extremely complicated, but at the same time, extreme fun.
3: I am scared to look under this desk now because I don't normally record in this room. I don't know if it's been cleaned. What's under there? Who knows? You've said lots of things that are very interesting and I'm going to come back on, but the first one I just want to very quickly pick up is what should I be scared of in the bathroom? What creature is that?
4: Oh, there's a very dangerous creature hiding in the bathroom. Especially Russian folklore. And if you happen to step on him or something like that, he will take revenge on you. So take care in the bathroom. The slippery floor is dangerous, which coincides with everyday life, okay? So there are many things waiting for you in every corner of your room. And you have to be careful not only about the bathroom, the steam room, which is so important in everyday life, but also about which side of the bed you take. How do you sleep? What do you take for breakfast? Okay, Noah and I had the same British breakfast, in fact. <laughs> so, you really have to be careful about everything at every moment of, of your life. But think about it, how much it affects your way of thinking, how much of imagination it's awakened all the time, night and day. So, these aspects really make your life much more exciting. Think about it when you go to the bathroom.
2: What is that creature called? The banik. He dwells in basically Russian steam houses or communal bathhouses, which were complex places, transitory places, these liminal zones that are both aquatic and terrestrial. And it's also associated with a giving birth because for lack of hospital access, women might give birth in a bathhouse. And there are various rituals associated with bathing, And you name your dark corner, there's a creature lurking there. And one of the things that I think is indicative of the fact that Svetlana had to give a very long and intricate answer to your very short question is that the Slavs are incredibly diverse. So when they swept out of their origins were probably in the Carpathian Mountains, hence the Romania connection. And as of the 8th century, they're already encroaching on Byzantine territory and they're threatening pre-existing kingdoms. They're threatening the Frankish kingdom as well in Central Europe. And they wind up splintering off. They're this enormous warlike tribe of forest dwellers. They were shamanistic. So there was a belief that the trees and elements of the natural world also had spiritual properties. They're polytheistic, but they're speaking a variety of languages, particularly as they spread out. So the Slavs are covering all of Central and Eastern Europe. And to give a sense of just how big that is, you know, the Slavic diaspora is among the largest in known history when we look at where they moved to historically and then spreading out across the globe. And with the spread comes a diversity of languages. They may have the same origin. But then you get different terms for things and just to confuse you, there are different names for different gods and different attributes and it doesn't have that nice clean equation that we're used to in the Greco-Roman tradition of, you know, Venus equals the goddess of love. You have a god like Veles and Veles is like Hades or there is a Satan equivalent once the god is Christianized. And he's the ruler of darkness and swamps. And you think that this is a bad thing. But he's also the ruler of animals, livestock, wealth, music, poetry. So it's messy. And the messiness is interesting, but it makes it much harder to grasp at first glance, which is why I think the Slavic pantheon, as rich as it is, is not as well known as some of the basically simpler pantheons to understand
1: in a sentence or two. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Because it's that much harder to almost distill. Yeah, and then you have
2: the distinction between there's the Russian tradition, which is very strong, and you have the Yugoslav, which means Southern Slavic traditions, and then you have, you know, Slavs in other countries like Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Poland, you name it, and each of these are are sort of splinter groups with their own variations on the themes or different names for things or different hybridizations because a god being of one thing that would be nice for <laughs> memorization on your exams but <laughs> in practice here each one is representative of multiple characteristics that may shift based on geography and time.
3: That is very fascinating, very complex. Something I want to pick up and kind of what I was thinking when Savannah was reeling off all these different spirits and creatures that you might find in all places of life. And I I think it'd be quite interesting to hear from this on both of you, is to what extent the existence of these creatures and the myths around them influence daily life, if they still do?
2: They certainly did historically, and maybe Svetlana can speak to that, but I'll just give you an example. My grandmother-in-law keeps what's called an Easter bundle. I live in in the mountains in Slovenia, and she keeps what's called an Easter bundle, which is a little colored, basically spruce shavings bouquet that's blessed at a church, and she takes it every Easter to be blessed, and she keeps it at home when, when there's a thunderstorm, still to this day, and she's very Catholic, she breaks off a piece of it and throws it in the fire because it protects the house from being struck by lightning. So this is an ancient Slavic tradition that a very happily Catholic grandmother-in-law still does almost subconsciously. She probably doesn't think twice about it. So today, you can still feel elements of this. And maybe Svetlana can speak to how it would have shaped really every aspect of your life in historical periods.
4: Well, I will bring out some examples from my life, my sorcery life. And one of them is certainly that my grandmother, whenever I was going to the exam at the university, she would pour water after me. That was very important. The other thing is that she would tell me when I was mixing an egg yolk that I should always do it in the direction of the watch, turning around, never in the reverse sense. And I secretly, I was doing exactly that, hoping that I would get a chicken at the end. <laughs> And finally, when someone dies in the house, immediately all the mirrors are covered with cloth. The same moment, that's what my mother did when my grandmother died and so on. That's what I did in several occasions. There are things that you just don't think of. And of course, the important thing is also that the bread on the table should be always turned with a flat part on the table. Never <laughs> reverse, and stuff like that. So, yes, you you just live with that, and you don't think about it, but you do it.
3: Amazing. I want to move on to a different creature or creatures, depending. This is what we'll talk about. We talked about gods, but a lot of your book is dedicated to vampires and werewolves. And I just wondered if that was because they are predominant in modern frames of reference, as well as in Slavic myth, or if they're actually the most important in Slavic folklore?
2: I think that's really the first two things that come to mind that the general public is aware of, but doesn't probably know that they're of Slavic origin. So the ubiquity of them, the the importance of them, is not paramount in the ancient world. But I think for understanding or as a point of entry, to learning about Slavic mythology, they're the most obvious entry point because everybody knows about them, but everybody knows a modernized version of them. And what's interesting is in historical Slavic sources, they're actually one and the same creature called a Vukodlak, but Vukodlak was a word that was so scary that you weren't supposed to say it. It was a bit like Voldemort in Harry Potter. So instead you could say Vampir. And the stories behind vampires and werewolves split only much later, it's really in the 19th century imagination, that they split into two separate creatures, whereas historically, they're melded into one super monster, if you will. (laughs) What I found fascinating in doing research for this is looking at just how much of a craze there was around vampire legends, long before Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, which was really a byproduct of it. And that's what codified it for much of the world, but a lot of his sources came from usually secondary sources that he was reading that were reporting on behaviors in the Slavic part of the world. The earliest printed reference to vampires comes in a book called Glory of the Duchy of Carniola, which is this enormous multi-volume encyclopedia of folk tales and natural history by a guy named Valvasor, who was a Germanic aristocrat living in what's today Slovenia. And he writes about a vampire named Jure Grando, who lived in Istria, which is a peninsula between Venice and Croatia and Slovenia. And he was dispatched by a local sheriff in the first sort of vampire hunting story that's reminiscent of some of the fight scenes in Dracula. And then we have these fascinating early references to the practice of re-killing the recently deceased and buried in Serbian villages written up by Austrian officers who were very Enlightenment, rationalistic, Catholic, you know, this is not what you do. When somebody's buried, they're buried, and you're not supposed to kill them again, and they're not supposed to get up and terrorize the village. And you have this interesting dynamic of these very, like, I imagine, uptight and trying to be wholly rational officers, trying to explain what they're seeing in practice. And the fascination with this, and the idea that it's so anti Christian and anti-reason. It really spread like wildfire and launched you know, everything from plays to novels to you name it. There was a proper vampire craze and really Dracula is the zenith of it, but it's not the start of it.
3: And so we've discovered that vampire as a word once described werewolves, which is boggling enough. You say something in the book that uh, I'm paraphrasing this, but the difference between Slavic and pop culture vampires is actually quite small, whereas difference between Pop culture werewolves and subject werewolves is actually quite large, and I wonder if you could just chew into it out a bit for us.
2: <laughs> so one of the main differences is the idea that there's a hybrid human wolf creature is a more modern concept, and the ancient idea of a werewolf is linked to the leading totemic animal of the ancient Slavs, vuk, which means wolf, which was a wolf, but also a god. And you would have religious leaders in a shamanic manner donning wolf skin while engaging in religious rites among ancient Slavs. And the real focus is in transforming wholly into a wolf. And you have this idea that if you're cursed or if you're a magician, you can transform yourself. Or you can have it as this component, the idea of transforming in a full moon is a more modern concept. But you get this entire transformation into a wolf, as opposed to this humanoid wolf monster that we associate with werewolves today.
3: There's one other thing about vampires that I absolutely have to pick up from the book. The properly literary vampire, you write, is based on Lord Byron. Which I thought was fascinating.
2: Like, tell us about that. Okay, so... Lord Byron was a mythical figure during his lifetime as well. He was a pinup before the era of pinups. He was considered wildly seductive and handsome and just the best thing ever. Among people who had never seen a picture of him, perhaps maybe a print of what he looked like. And he was this sort of swarthy, dark-haired lover who was a fantasy of perhaps men and women alike. And the proto-Dracula story was called The Vampire by John Polidori who was part of a party that got together for a holiday near Lake Geneva in Switzerland. And it involved Percy Bysshe Shelley and Mary Shelley, his wife, and John Polidori and Byron. And they got together to write ghost stories on a rainy period during their holiday when they couldn't go swimming and hang out and frolic in the mountains. And that was the origin of a number of important stories, the most important of which was Frankenstein, which was written by Mary Shelley, or at least the first draft of what was written then. They were inspired by a book called Phantasmagoria, which was a collection of Germanic ghost stories that they found in the castle. And John Polidori wrote The Vampire, which was a complicated sort of, I want to say, It wasn't quite a forgery, but there were issues with who wrote it. And it was quite clear that after the fact, there was an attempt on the part of publishers to make people think that Byron had written it. And the figure of the vampire in it was based on Polidori's not entirely flattering impression of Lord Byron himself. And Byron also wrote a story about a vampire in a Turkish cemetery, but it didn't take off the way John Polidori's The Vampire did. And that really led to a series of other books, but also stage plays, about vampires. All of them with the same context that they're effectively aristocrats with pale skin and dark hair, who basically look like Byron, and they're Eastern European, but they're frolicking in the salons of Western European cities like London. And they're sexual predators, but the sexualization takes the form of blood-sucking rather than actual sexual endeavors. So it's making fun of and based on and also paying homage to Byron all rolled into one.
3: And do you think we can go from Byron and draw a line all the way through to Dracula?
2: Oh, absolutely. Although the basis for Dracula is also a reference to the famous actor who Bram Stoker was the theatrical agent for. And I think he had Byron-like qualities. So the, I think you have to hybridize the two. But there's a little bit of this fear of the seductive other on the part of particularly British audiences. But there was also there was a French craze for, of interest in vampires. There was a French priest who wrote a compendium of vampire stories. So I think a lot of it is, you know, rational Enlightenment era Catholics from Western Europe are looking at the sort of inherent dangers and threats of these Eastern European influences that are infiltrating, and they're afraid that they're going to metaphorically maybe bleed the empire dry. There were a lot of vampire analogies in political texts and, you know, steal all of our women or however you want to put it, but you can project social fears that were then manifest in vampire stories
3: one thing this book does which is very interesting it's not just a discourse of the myths and like their meanings there are actually stories in here as well so you're interspersing discussion with tales and i just wondered why you chose to approach it in that way
2: this was part of it am i allowed to say because it was fun thames and hudson has this wonderful myth series But the one thing that I wanted more of was the stories themselves, because a lot of the other editions tell the stories very briefly, just summarize them rather than telling them. And for me, part of the fun is the chance to provide modern retellings that are points of departure for the scholarly analysis. And for example, my 10-year-old daughter reads the legends for fun. And she actually tried to read the scholarly analysis, too. She said she read them. I'm not sure how much fun they were. But (laughs) but we do have this pattern. There are eight chapters, and we chose eight primary myths, each one to open a chapter. So the first one is a vampire story, the most famous Serbian vampire story. We have a werewolf story um, starting the werewolf chapter. We have a story about Baba Yaga, who's probably the third most famous Slavic mythological figures starting a chapter on female deities and the idea is that it's a hook to pull you in and We really enjoyed doing these modern retellings. This was great fun to do and then once you have this point of reference then we take you through the social and cultural history of the creatures and characters involved And to me, that's basically the most fun way to read this sort of thing. And so trying to (laughs) offer that up to readers was part of the fun.
3: And One thing I thought was quite interesting is, so you make a point in the book about how these kind of myths are folk tales until the point they get written down, and then they they become something new, they become a fairy tale. And I just wondered what you thought about how the myths as we have them now is influenced by the time that
2: they were actually written down. It's hugely influenced, and this is part of the problem. So there is almost no written source of ancient Slavic culture, period. And what we have are writings by contemporaries who saw the Slavs as this probably threatening other, that they need to understand better. So we have a lot of like Byzantine historians writing about the Slavs, but there's almost nothing that has been handed down to us that's actually of Slavic origin. So where did these stories come from? And the answer is a combination of things. One is oral tradition, but we're talking about oral tradition over, you know, more than a millennium. And if you ever played the game of telephone, you can understand that it doesn't take a millennium for things to get potentially confused and altered when passed traditionally from one to another. But first they're in the form of these folk tales, and the definition of folk tales that Marina Warner uses that I think is apt is stories for whom there's no author given. So they emerge to us, we don't know where they come from, and they're passed down usually in a spoken manner, and usually from women to women. For example, the Brothers Grimm actually hired a little girl to listen to stories told by an old woman who would only tell them to children. And then she passed on the stories to them so that they could write them down. So what are the original stories? We really don't know. What we have in almost every case is a 19th century codified version of them. They become fairy tales or myths if they have to do with explaining the natural world and origins and have have a component linked to religion, whereas fairy tales are usually not based on a specific religious practice. And we have them written down in a context of two things that are completely different from what their origins would have been. One is Christianity, so they're they've been Christianized, or rather they've been told within a Christianized context. And two, we have the spring of nations. We have the 19th century time where... The Slavic nations, which were previously functioning under the auspices of larger empires, particularly the Habsburg-Austro-Hungarian Empire, are starting to say, we want independence. And a lot of their independence was based on language, that we don't speak German at home, we speak our local Slavic language, and that's what unites us as a people. And trying to put into context these ancient stories that were Christianized and then made to seem like origin stories that would provide a foundation for these new nations to go independent. And we have examples like the story of Libuše, who is a queen who has a foundation story for the city of Prague. Praha means threshold in Czech and that's why we named our version of the story Threshold and this is a story that you know my guess is it wasn't important in the ancient world or it wasn't particularly important but it became so because it was effectively assigned the origin story role for why Prague is the capital of the Czech people and it's very different from the I would love to know what the original stories were but I'm afraid we don't have them.
3: Svetlana, I wonder we mentioned Le Boucher very quickly there. To what extent do we feel that these myths and the way they've been created in the nineteenth century fosters that sense of national identity of new nations?
4: Well, they were the construction of a nation demands a story, the original story. And the original story must have a hero. A hero, a cultural hero and a winner in many battles. And sometimes, sometimes they were simply invented for the new nation. Some historical facts, uh, some uh, remains of the oral literature. And there you go. You have a national myth, national hero, thought of a national culture. And of course, the demand of having the territories of other national group, <laughs> which is possessing them at this moment, but not forever, and so on and so on. The, the originality must go back, 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 very early times, non-defined, and so on. So, you have the right to take the territory of the other. So, you have this deep political meaning of the Slavic myths, which were interpreted in a very wrong way, for instance, before the war in Yugoslavia. The newly invented and the wrongly interpreted myths were crucial in forming this, this uh, monstrous ideas about nations which emerged in the 80s of the last century in Yugoslavia. They did not lead to war, but the use, their use in propaganda did. So myths were crucial in forming this war discourse which was about taking revenge on others which are planning to take revenge on us, but before them.
3: I mean, would it be fair to say that some of those myths were kind of like weaponized to create the propaganda for to kind of push political will?
4: Oh, definitely. And when you hear people talking about their own misfortunes and catastrophes and deaths of their loved ones, you will often hear the echo of certain myths of collectivity. Because collectivity is the shield for a weak person. The collective does serve to blame the other, to lift your own guilt. So it's it's extremely dangerous psychological area which has not been researched enough, I think.
3: I have one final question for each of you. Svetlana, very first. In brief, why is the cabbage magical?
4: Ah, <laughs> The cabbage is magical because it was magical in ancient times because of its phallic form. And it was interpreted as a way of destroying male masculinity. This is connected with the image of the young men in antiquity, which is the image of a tender flower which withers away very quickly. And that's the female and male sexuality. So cabbage was considered something that is strongly... Not advised when you want to be a man, <laughs> and so there is a case of a bisexual god Dionysus, who never let uh, cabbages inside the vineyards. So <laughs> there's the first thing, <laughs> and the other thing is that the cabbage was considered extremely medicinal, highly medicinal plant, which was used against alcoholism, <laughs> against drunkenness. <laughs> first of all. So, you have all possible meanings of sexuality, eroticism, male masculinity inside this plant, which in the modern times becomes something completely different. It does not have this high stalk and little head, which reminds of we know what, but in fact, it's round, it's huge, and uh, it's remember something else. So, you have a popular French tradition which is told to two babies even now in France that they were born out of cabbage. And there's a love expression in French, mon chou, my little cabbage. Well, my cabbage, basically. So, there's a branching of totally contradictory stories coming from the same source.
3: And Noah? This book, has lots of stories in it. So you've got vampires and werewolves. talked about the Baba Yaga. There's a firebird, Ilya Muramets. But what it isn't is an exhaustive encyclopedia of Savak Mips. So I wondered if you could have included one extra story, what would that story have been?
2: Oh, what a great question. Yeah, there were actually in the, the director's cut edition, we had many more chapters. I think we could have had expansive chapters that cover things like fairies, We wound up putting water creatures all together. We were going to have a separate one on magic spells. I don't think we got to the point of choosing which specific story we would have chosen. We usually began with the theme and then worked backwards. So we have throw in, you know, Rusalki or Baniki in the chapter on watery creatures, but they could have had their own freestanding one. And I would have liked something about Slavic magic as its own chapter, but we just ran out of space. Tell me very quickly then about Slavic magic. So I'm going to let Svetlana do this, because she's the Slavic sorceress.
4: Well, the basic procedure of the Slavic magic is metempsychosis, the transfer of souls. And it's explained very simply in shamanic techniques. Shamans, in fact, are transferred from one body to another, And they can become animals or things or heavens or gods or whatever. They communicate with other worlds, and then they come back and tell us the truth. So, this is the basic Slavic magic. But most of the Slavic magic is analogous. So, you do, in reality, in the material world, something that would be translated into your wishes to become a true or not to become true, depending on what you want. So basically, you do things. You imagine that you are transferring your soul into a thing. So you can imagine around the uh, stones from a little river to represent your dead relatives and you bring them home, and you talk to them, you put a cloth on them, you communicate with them, and when the ritual is finished, you bring them back to the river. And the water will flow and transfer your wishes and everything you wanted to say to them.
0: That was Noah Charney and Svetlana Slapsak. Their book, The Slavic Myths, is available now from Thames and Hudson. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.